Good morning and welcome back to the Other Faces. Welcome back for another special episode here. Of course, I am your jolly green giant, your track of all glades. And I thank you for joining us once again. I'm sure, like me, you're very, very excited to get to this special episode all about the NBA play-in tournament starting tonight. Oh, no, wait, that's wrong, isn't it? No, we're not doing that. Much as I wish we could, we're going to have to stick with scraps and scrolls instead, which is its own fun. Maybe one day I'll persuade you all to let me just go on and on about the NBA and the playoffs at the beginning. Definitely where my excitement lies, but I quite like this chapter as well because we are going through, obviously, Ariane 2 today. We're keeping up with one of my favourite characters and we have got plenty to discuss. So again, I say thank you for joining us. Always great to have you here. I am speaking to you from a, well, today actually it's decided to be quite hot and sunny. The pollen is rising. It hasn't caught me yet. You might hear some sniffles in future episodes, but so far I'm safe. Perhaps we're escaping the spring showers. Maybe I've just uh, cursed myself for saying that, but fingers crossed. You would think it would be me moaning about the weather the most because I do have to go on the long old dog walks. No, no, no. Princess Zelda, she's the one who hates the rain. She's the one who doesn't want to go out. Spoiled little pup that she is. But yes, yes, down to business. Like I said today, scraps and scrolls, we're continuing with our Winds of Winter preview chapters. We're continuing with Ariane specifically. She has two chapters, which is super, super news for us. We will get to that, of course. But before doing so, just to catch you up with where we are, don't forget, I'm going to remind you just once again that last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, me and Emily, Emily of the Eerie, were lucky enough to guest upon History of Westeros and their live stream for Ariane 1. I remind you of that because a lot of the stuff we discussed with Aziz and Asher there did lead into kind of what we'll cover today. We obviously had a lot of overall Ariane talk and what we thought Ariane might face in the future and some of that will link in with our notes from today so you might want to check that out if you haven't already thank you if you have that's always so much appreciated that was a great time had by all and I'm sure as many of you are already aware of course History of Westeros continued with their Ariane coverage this past weekend they dove into Ariane 2 with good friend of the podcast Scad from Davos Fingers our alumnus here along with at Monaro Unlimited or Monaro Geek TV you might know from YouTube I'm sure more than a few of you are aware of their work as well and I'm going to guess the majority of you have caught that already but just in case you haven't go over and have a look on History of Westeros. Now in terms of what else is happening on the aisle well the second edition of the 100 questions of winter winter that is in the can that is all recorded for you i think i did mention last week that is questions 11 to 20 of our 100 questions obviously that's with emily in attendance so that should be with you later this week maybe thursday maybe the weekend it's a long old episode this one's fairly long old episode and we have a third as well the sporkle spectacular so you can see why we've got to space all these out and get them all edited and everything like that i think you're going to like the second edition of the questions podcast We've got some doozies in there. We've got some really good discussions that we're looking forward to hearing. We talk about as yet unseen locations. We talk about who's going to be the fan favourite. We talk some Sweet Robin. We talk some Tywin and Lisa and what he's up to. Loads and loads. Of course, another 10 questions for you there. I know how much you all liked the first edition because you've told me and the numbers say so. So hopefully you'll agree on the second one as well. It was great fun. Can't wait for you to get to that one. It will be with you soon. Do not worry. With patrons first, of course, but for the public not too long after. And as I said, that Sporkle Spectacular that we recorded a couple of weeks ago now with Emily, that was coming as well. After that will be Emily's interview only and we'll be continuing with Scraps and Scrolls. To be honest, I could have chosen to put up the second questions first, but I think Scraps and Scrolls still has to take precedent. And again, we're syncing up as much as possible with History of Westeros, so that'll come now, obviously, you're listening to it. But questions 11 to 20, not too far behind. Keep sending in your questions, keep sending in your answers, keep sending in your feedback and your comments and all that kind of stuff because we both me and Emily we both love it for you to do that now one more thing before we get going you know what it is it's thank you time of course to our wonderful patrons 
who always lead the charge in being so nice and sending that feedback, whether it is comments on Patreon, whether it is personal messages to me, whether it is on Twitter or anywhere else, you are all so wonderful at just being supported and lovely and generous, of course. So, to that vein, let me thank Gardener Queen, Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yin Sleepover, Grizzly M, Glenn T, Egan the Sixth, Lord Commander, Namian Darklin, KM, and of course, Archmaster June, healer of the lesser poxes thank you one and all and to all patrons and to all listeners of course okay i think that's everything we need to get to let's talk about the woman we're all gathered here on the aisle to discuss is ariane yet again ariane to the winds of winter well today what we're really going to see in this chapter is the taking of all that theory based stuff from ariane one and we're going to move it into the practical there it was just thoughts now it's actually going to happen in ariane one wonderful as it was we didn't get many events the main thing that happened plot wise was ariane leaving sunspear which happened right at the beginning that will not be the case today ariane 2 will have a lot more going on there will be a lot more active plot points ariane deliberated and discussed and wondered about so much in her first chapter well that will continue today of course because that choice and what she's going to do is still taking up 100 of her mental attention right now but we'll be mixing it with the expectations and the rumors now getting thrown in there with the actual reality she'll come face to face with what she's been talking about we'll take another huge step on the merging of the dornish and central targaryen storyline we discussed just how important that was so much last week there is more to come after this chapter of course we assume king's landing and cersei will also eventually merge into the dragon stream obviously that's going to be an even bigger deal than the dornish storyline but this is still big stuff right here this is still our opening door into one of the main focuses of the winds of winter and not to repeat myself but the coming of the dragons Aegon now maybe danny later it just doesn't get much bigger than that it is everything to everyone below the neck it's going to affect the whole world like you can't avoid it above the neck they've got their own huge storylines going on but we're taking our first steps into major major main stage stuff not just for wins remember but for the series in general we're here we're at the top level and i suppose it's stuff like that that makes you realize how much is actually going to be in this book we separate it up week by week i think it's easy to forget but just think how much actually has to fit into this one edition you'll recall when we were talking about how huge all the battle of marine stuff will be well that was only like a couple of chapters that seems ages ago already then we've got all this stuff for the dragons we've not even gotten to the north yet and that's all at the beginning that's all we know right from the first i don't know tenth of the book it's just amazing to think of isn't it we can't wait to have it in our hands so yes we'll cover a lot more of the dragon stuff and that merging with the big storyline we'll talk a lot more about ariane's personality and her inner struggles her mental struggles about growing up and who she has to be now and what her new role is and what she's actually got to be doing we'll talk more personal relationships of course both with her brother both with other people and one thing that i think probably does separate this chapter quite a lot from ariane one is we'll be able to talk a lot more about the uh, effect in the formation of the golden company how they're acting how people will receive them who they're made up of that's going to come especially in the second half of the chapter we're really going to touch on that a lot more we're going to get a different viewpoint of them than we have just from john con's chapters in dance and presumably in this book as well I think that would be the real uh, separator between Ariane 1 and 2. Looking forward to getting to that. But also, one of the biggest points of this chapter, in my opinion, is that we return to the Stormlands. In fact, we come to a brand new area of that realm in the Rainwood, which is very, very exciting for 
geography nerds like me. Now, yes, you will remember this is something I've brought up many, many times before, my lamenting of how little Stormlands we've actually gotten in the past few books. I won't repeat it all for you here, I think I probably did that enough when John Connington took us back for the first time in three whole books, and I've done it in the Castles book as well, but I love that we are returning here. Perhaps we get a John Connington chapter between Ariane 1 and 2, and this spiel is better placed there, but for our purposes right now, this is our first step back into what looks to be a kingdom that will finally, finally get its due in the winds of winter. I hear everyone calling for Castley Rock or asking if we'll see Highgarden, and I say, whoa, 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 slow your roll there, my friend. Storm's End is still first in line. I will try to avoid going on my rant, and this actually does kind of cross over into the second edition of the 100 Questions of Winter Winter, just to give you a little preview of that. And yes, it is in John Con's chapters, yes, it is in the Castle's book, but I can't resist. Just remember, we've never actually been in Storm's End, which still blows my mind, even now. I'm well aware of this fact, I go on about it all the time, and it still does make sense to me. We've seen it from afar, we've been under it, but that's all. Of the storms themselves, we've really seen next to nothing. We got the briefest of glimpses from Catelyn and in Davos's chapters back in Clash. Then we saw Griffin's Roost in Dance, to be fair, but that was it. And I just think we deserve more for such a key, central place in the world of our story. It is the birthplace of some of our biggest characters in Barristan, Brienne, Davos. Okay, he's from King's Landing, but he's adopted the Stormlands of his home, to say nothing of the Baratheons, Fairly big characters, I think you'll agree. I've gone on so much about how important both Storm's End and the Stormlands were in the first act of the series, those first three books, but since then, or even since Clash really, it's been basically abandoned. We never got our full fill. Well, luckily, I'm here to tell you that Winds looks to end that crime. We've got our theories on finally being introduced to Storm's End properly, or at the very least a major battle happening there. We've been talking about it in the past few weeks about potentially meeting some Stormlander souls that we've hardly seen or haven't met before, and there could yet be further landings in this area as well. And it's all going to begin here, in Ariane 2, as we enter the Rainwood and Cape Wrath. We see this beautiful sounding area that makes up one of the three geographical subsections that the Stormlands features. And yes, okay, if you really want to hear more about that, you can look at the Castles book, because I do spend quite a lot of time talking about those three sections and how the Stormlands makes up its own mini economy, etc, etc. I won't go on about it now, but it absolutely sounds like my kind of place. I personally would really, really like to explore the Rainwood. It sounds like a Skyrim place by its description. We'll come back to that later. And it's also a major, major site of ancient Westerosi history. Consider that this forest, once extended all the way up to the Kingswood and likely beyond, Half of it was burned in the Dornish Wars, for example. This is far from the full feature we're getting here. It was one of the homes of the Children of the Forest, which we will cover later on as well. It's one of the bedrocks of how this world was formed. And you know, if you've been listening for a while, that I love this stuff. So it's really cool to be able to explore it a little bit. For a bit more of a present angle, consider we are entering the lands technically owned by one Sir Davos Seaworth. You could say that's under contention right now, if you want to be fair, but Davos is still Lord of the Rainwood. Considering how close we are with Davos and how a major part of his arc, especially early on, is his relationship with being a lord, with owning lands, being a member of that nobility and not feeling like one, well it means it's pretty key to think about right here. We are walking on Davos's land today. We've never done that before, of course. Not that it really affects anything, given where Davos is right now, what's going on with Stannis, but it does also get us thinking about the other Seaworths, the ones who've spent the entire series waiting at home and not much else. They're not going to turn up today, unfortunately, but they might do in the future. They've certainly entered our mindset. I could go on and on about this place all day, but I should probably get to the actual text first, shouldn't I? Suffice to say, it will be very satisfying to physically tread the Stormlands, to bring it back to the importance on the national stage, we're going to meet some of its characters, we're going to meet some more of the Golden Company, like I said, 
and we will see how Ariane's going to react to being in what is the near opposite of her world, the place she's spent her entire life so far. This is definitely not Dawn, it's very, very different. And as I say, we're gonna to get to that in the text. Before we actually start the chapter properly, let me give you some stats. This chapter is 5,906 words long by my count. That is a little bit longer than Ariane 1, and it's actually the second longest Ariane chapter ever. I went back and checked, and I actually forgot that the princess in the tower, well, that was far, far longer than I recalled. It's up about 8,000 words, so we're nowhere near that, but we are about 1,000 words longer than last week. And consider how much we had to cover back in that amazing chapter last week. Ooh, well, I could have gone even longer than I did, I think you'll know. So there's going to be plenty to cover today. Now, just as a quick reminder, just if you need it, Ariane has left Sunspear, she's now left Dawn, and is aboard the Peregrine, headed for the Stormlands. We met Damon last week, we met Elia last week, we spoke bunches and bunches about the huge decision awaiting Ariane, and the themes that weave into that choice, Targaryens, war, what's happened to Quentin, what to think of Daenerys. They will all make a return today, in fact, we're going to get quite a lot of progression on those, Ariane will find out some important things. And by the end of the day, you'll most definitely be able to say that yes, a lot more did happen in this chapter. So let's get to it, I think. Let's head into Ariane 2. So first things first to notice, we're sticking with the name title again. George hasn't switched that up yet, so that's good to see. And in fact, let's just go over to our opening line. That's what we'd like to do. And today it concentrates on the exact themes we've just been talking about coming to the Stormlands. It's actually fairly unique as opening lines go for these preview chapters. Normally we have some doom and gloom theme setting or at least some establishment of the main character. This is really our first one so far that hits on geography first. In this case it's the southern coast of Cape Wrath, specifically the crumbling watchtower set to watch out for Dornish raiders coming from the south. Ariane refers to them as ancient, which I suppose they are by now, but like I mentioned a moment ago, the history we have of this area goes far, far further back than that. We have talk of the first men very first coming over to the Stormlands and interacting with the children of the forest. It's where they came into conflict over the first men's use of trees and timber. That's how that all started. That's real, true ancient, isn't it? Ariane doesn't know. Again, I just, I just love this area and the mists of time feeling that we can have in this specific geography. I mentioned this last week and several previous times as well, but this is yet another new place. We will have more new characters. George is just never going to stop giving us that, even if it is the winding down of the series. So I'm just going to remind you of that fact once more. New places, new people. That's just going to keep going through wins, I think. Perhaps we can find some thematics in this first picture. There are structures to warn or even ward off the Dornish. They signify that Dornish people, they're not welcome here, or they weren't at one point at least. They signify that this is a new, very different world. There's a literal marker here, a different world that Ariane is now obviously walking straight into. She's officially no longer on home turf. She's somewhere different where a warm welcome is far from guaranteed. Now is where her mission truly begins. It's been easy so far. That was like the loading screen. Now we're actually in it deep. And that feeling is doubled down on when the peregrine lands at the weeping town and Ariane looks up at the banners of one Tommen Baratheon. Who knows how long they'll last there, but the same message is clear. Whether you want to label it as enemy territory, that's a difficult question, but it's certainly not friendly territory, is it? The danger and tension is already seeing a huge increase in comparison to Ariane 1. We've just got different stakes. Remember, she got away with having her failed practice run during feasts, specifically because it happened in Dawn. There's no room for such error over here. Earlier on, I was speaking about the importance of the Stormlands, and I'm going to bring it up again now, on our second paragraph. Remember that the Stormlands is still the Royal Kingdom. 
as in the king is officially a Baratheon. This is where his family is supposed to come from. Now that's been completely corrupted throughout the series thanks to the Lannisters' influence, but it just makes it all the weirder that the Stormlands have been so forgotten. Imagine how disconnected these people must feel to their king, despite the fact that his supposed heritage connects so heavily with their own. But for now, we move on to the Weeping Town. Ariane mentions that several small villages or towns dot this southern coast, which again connects to that little localised economy I spoke about earlier on. We won't go too deep into it, but Cape Wrath is a highly valuable area that honestly takes care of itself in a way. It's self-sufficient. It has a lot going for it. It's almost surprising that there's no city there yet, but perhaps that's why they've kept this ecosystem going for through not overexpanding. That's a conversation for another day probably, but it is interesting. For our purposes, we do have the Weeping Town perhaps the Stormland's busiest port, at least it is on this southern coast, and it's probably a good candidate if a city were ever to grow. Quite famously amongst the fandom, it is ruled by House Whitehead. The name of the town derives from the tale that Ariane herself supplies. The young dragon, Darren the First Targaryen, the guy that Jon Snow used to have a poster of on his wall, was brought here after he died, his corpse staying for three whole days. The town and its people, apparently, wept their hearts out at this event, hence the name. And let's not forget the manner of the young dragon's death. While trying to rule Dawn again, he met the Dornish under a peace banner and was then betrayed, chopped down by multiple enemies. At least that's the tale anyway. Obviously, such a crime is a big no-no in Westeros, and it hits again on that theme of the Dornish not being welcome here historically. So we're getting even more fish-out-of-water vibes for Ariane already here early on. Ariane might be aware of the history, but she's not concentrating on it. If she has enemies, she considers them to either be these invaders from across the sea, or the Lannisters up in King's Landing, or maybe both. Not these people of the Weeping Town. Still, distance no longer means safety, so she takes the precaution of telling her retinue to keep their traps shut. Don't make a fuss. If we can pass through undetected, all the better. Just in case this apparent rebellion does turn out to be a load of bullshit, we don't want to be mixed up in it publicly. If that is how it turns out, they'd really rather the Lannisters not know that Dawn even entertained the possibility of joining a rebellion. That sounds very much like Duran thinking, doesn't it? Don't show your hand. Don't piss off your technical boss. Indeed, Ariane relates it straight to the lesson that we know Duran lives by, and I've already mentioned a bunch in Ariane 1. We'll have your first quote today. That was another lesson that her father had taken pains to teach her. Choose your side with care, and only if they have the chance to win. I will note here, it's interesting that Ariane refers to it as Lord Connington's Rebellion still. And we know why, it makes sense, they've only heard from Jon, they don't know the truth of Aegon yet, and it does seem like Jon's in charge. But I wonder how Aegon would react to hearing it named as such. I don't think he'd be all that pleased. I do wonder if that wedge is just going to widen and widen as we get further in the story, and maybe Ariane would play a big part in that. We did kind of touch on that sort of thing on the History of Westeros livestream a while back. Now they're back on solid land, Ariane's crew, they need to secure their next mode of transport, which they do by purchasing some horses. But we're told about the type of waves that are already spreading out from Aegon's invasion here. It's not just the attacking and the taking of castles. There's economical fluxes, there's safety concerns, there's plenty going on. The horses, they're in higher demand now, and oxen as well. Invasions, they require a lot of logistical considerations, and we know that George always considers such levels. More importantly, this horse wrangler, he warns us about some of Connington's lot who will they'll give you a promise of payment which we could dispute as no payment at all as we've seen before with Sandok again or the Brotherhood of our Banners and some they'll just straight up cut you down for the mere mention of money so that's key for reminding us that John has not brought over some noble force to Restoros. these aren't unsullied they're a fighting force of men with the same disparity in ethics as any other group some of the Golden Company are back to fulfill old vows or take back ancient homes but not all of them and it is a sellsword company after all 
Plus, who's to say that some will not disobey John Con and take uh, certain liberties while out in the field? This is going to be a very heavy theme, actually, that we're going to tackle throughout this entire chapter. But then again, how much can we trust the rumour? We made a point of it last time. You can never be sure of anything in this type of arena. So did some of John Con's lot actually do this? Or maybe it's just a random bunch of criminals or bandits realising that they've got a convenient excuse and a scapegoat that they can take advantage of. Very possible. That theme of rumour and uncertainty continues. They might have the horses, but Ariane wants the opportunity to put a marker down and gather what information they can before moving on. The Weeping Town is large enough to have three inns, and we know what hubs of information, or claimed information at least, they can be. So Sir Damon Sand, he goes to the Broken Shield and is told that a sept has been burned and looted by raiders from across the sea. Okay, John Con's forces are from across the sea, but I don't think anyone is calling them raiders anymore, especially with the addition that a hundred young novices have been taken into slavery. So we're almost sure that this example is not the Golden Company. It's more likely to be some of those ships that the Tolans warned us about in Ariane's last chapter, or maybe even those that have a base currently in the Stepstones. We know the slavery trade is in a shambles right now, thanks to Daenerys, and it seems like the western free cities are trying to make up their losses by looking west instead of east across the narrow sea. We already know about Hardhome and it's relating to Bravos, etc. We know Euron has been involved in similar. Slavery, a major theme throughout the series, although mostly restricted to Danny's arc, is going to hit Westeros hard during Winds as the final restraints of society break apart. It's been rumoured, in fact this note is relatively fleeting in comparison, but it keeps growing and growing, so just keep your eye on that. I think it's going to be a big thing for Winds, even more so than in the past. Joss Hood tries his luck in The Loon, and hears news that eventually might have more of an impact on this storyline. Fifty men and boys have followed young Adam Whitehead to go and join John Connington. It's very, very reminiscent of Benfred Toolheart and his wild hairs up in the north, if you can stretch your memory back that far. Yes, this is the other side of the invasion coming. Like with Ariane, this chapter is going to tell us about how people will differently react to the news of invasion. These lads have decided that they want to view it as an adventure, something they can join in with. Again, like those wild hares chasing after Rob Stark's legacy, basically. In a way, the Stormlands, or certain parts of it, are comparable to maybe like the Vale, in that they haven't seen as much of the action. The Stormlands did overall, earlier on, true, but not the Weeping Town, and definitely not recently. So we basically have almost a new generation of green boys who either want to hunt that glory, or maybe genuinely believe that John Connington slash Aegon should be the ones to follow. Given the lack of leadership in the Stormlands in recent years, again, it's just been basically left there it's not surprising that they'd be on the lookout for someone to follow especially when your choices for leaders are either Tommen or Stannis not great choices finally in the drunken Dornishman good old Feathers gets the opposite treatment last time out we spoke a lot about the untrue rumors about Daenerys that would swirl around before she got here well that also goes both ways as we hear about crimes at Griffin's Roost that we know to be untrue some of this is just the natural way that stories grow in the telling, in this kind of setting. Some is likely a concentrated effort to discredit an invader and boost up Red Ronnet, who we know doesn't deserve such. Upon hearing this, Ariane uses up one of her ravens to send word back to her father about these rumours, and perhaps what they heard from the Tolans as well. It does seem to go against Duran's instructions to only send back certainties and fact, but he also said to communicate often. So I guess maybe if Ariane makes clear that this is all rumour she's hearing, then maybe it's fine. It seems almost like Aya's three truths in Bravos, doesn't it? The three things that she has to learn each day. With that, we already leave the Weeping Town behind and finally head off to the Rainwood. Before we get there, we cross green fields and little villages. It's another important section for the sustainability of the Stormlands, and it's an area we know is going to be of even higher importance going forward, 
given how much of everyone's farming space has been destroyed or disrupted elsewhere. Food is going to be in even more demand than usual for winter. This is one of the rare areas that's actually being allowed to produce, even though that's already being disrupted by invasion now. Ariane hits on the same point that we made earlier. War has not come here just yet. This is both rare and valuable, although it being pointed out like this does make you concerned for its future, of course. It seems the people of this land are beginning to think the same thing. They know they've been amazingly lucky, they know things could very easily turn with these invaders. Soon they could be victims merely because of where they live. We're told that Ariane's party receives wary looks and children are gathered close whenever they come by. Likely because strangers equal bad right now, any strangers. Or maybe it's just that old aversion to the Dornish coming through. We're also told that the further Ariane travels, the closer they get to the epicentre of this invasion, the more and more people they see travelling the other way, trying to escape it. And I'm sure you're like me, and immediately think of Aya seeing the same thing back in the day, everyone going the other direction to you. Sends a pretty clear message, doesn't it? I think Brienne might have seen something similar as well, but it's Aya's experiences that stick out to me personally. After a day of travel, Ariane and co come to the Rainwood, and George treats us to a rather wonderful description of this place that I really, really want to visit. Let me take you through it now. A wet green world where brooks and rivers ran through dark forests and the ground was made of mud and rotting leaves. Huge willows grew along the watercourses, larger than any that Ariane had ever seen, their great trunks as gnarled and twisted as an old man's face and festooned with beards of silvery moss. Trees pressed close on every side, shutting out the sun. Hemlock and red cedars, white oaks, soldier pines that stood as tall and straight as towers, colossal sentinels, big leaf maples, redwoods, worm trees, even here and there a wild weirwood. A wild weirwood, we don't get to hear them described as wild very often, do we? And that speaks to the feeling of history we described at the top of the episode, and it'll be important for connecting to some stuff that will come later on in the chapter, so bear it in mind. As you can see from that quote, it doesn't get that much more different from Dawn. You'd say the North is opposite, but I'm not so sure. I think this is much more different for Ariane than the North would be. It's really setting with that feeling of being different, being someone she's never experienced before, completely fish out of water. We have another very short quote here. It's that one line. It says, The very air seemed green. I just adore that line. It's not surprising, considering that I'm talking to you from the other faces, but what a description. This seems wondrous to me, this place where the very air seems green. The Rainwood is quickly becoming one of my favourite places for its descriptions alone. I think it keeps up that theme of the ancient, of how things are supposed to be naturally. And you know how much I tend to buy into that kind of stuff. We now have an extended paragraph that I find oddly funny. Really, it's just Ariane remembering an argument between Duran and Acceptan on the weather on either side of the Sea of Dawn, which sounds like the driest possible conversation on Earth, but I quite like it. It's an opportunity for George to quickly slip in some legend and history of the Stormlands in terms of Duran God's grief and his interaction with the Sea God and the Goddess of the Wind. It's borrowing from the story of Storm's End, which we are kind of heading towards. Duran obviously takes a more scientific approach of moisture being picked up from the sea and then deposited on Cape Wrath. Durant never managed to persuade the Septon of this, but it does show off his level of intelligence. Ariane has the time for remembering such thoughts, because while beautiful, the rainwood is not easy to traverse. No true road has been built for it, which I'm happy to hear about. Yeah, keep out. And that leaves the party to take what they can, even if it includes riding over rocks or down cluttered ravines or having to avoid bogs. And of course, all around them comes down the rain. Dawn, this most certainly is not. This is Stormlands weather. The rain still fell, soft and steady. The sound of moisture dripping off the leaves was all around them, and every mile or so, the music of another little waterfall would call to them. Wow, George's picture painting of this place just gets better and better the further we go. I want to go to there, just to quote Liz Lemon. 
As we saw back in Feast, travelling in Dawn will normally include riding by night. That is not the case though here in the treacherous woods. So our next description concerns the caves that the groups get their rest in. And for the first time yet in this chapter, we actually get to catch up and be present for once. Elias-san lives up to the impression she made beforehand by lighting a torch and going off to explore. Ariane also continues her responsibility over the child by warning her not to go too deep. These caves go farther than you would think. Knowing as we do that these caves once, or perhaps still are, inhabited by the children of the forest, I'm going to bet that yeah, they really do go even further, even deeper down than Ariane thinks. I don't think we'd be seeing a repeat of Bloodraven's cave in terms of the creepy stuff inside, but in terms of structure and size, why not? This is one of the ancient places of the world. This is true history. Who knows what mysteries could lie beneath? And yeah, I do love that idea of children still being down below somewhere, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. In the meantime, Ariane continues with her less than impressive Savas record. Just like last time, she's just straight out that she's tired of such games when she has more important things to think of. One such thing is reflecting on what else could be happening while she's travelling. In Ariane 1, those types of thoughts were pretty much reserved for the East, for Quentin and Daenerys. Now she goes the other way and tries to work out where her Sand Snake cousins should be by now. She can't be sure, but she thinks that Nymeria and Tyene have either reached King's Landing or will do so soon. You'll remember how incredibly interesting their potential plots in King's Landing are. I won't take you all the way back through them, but we did discuss them quite a lot of the time, and we remember the key points, don't we? And we actually learn an important caveat here that I don't think we were told about back in Dance, the fact that 300 Dornish Spears have gone along for the ride and will also be in King's Landing. Now, a couple of books ago, that wouldn't have been such a big deal considering the numbers in the capital, but in Feast, You'll remember that we detailed how Cersei, and other circumstances in fairness, completely depleted the amount of fighting men in King's Landing. 300 Dornish Spears could make a lot more difference now, especially if Dorne does ally with Aegon, and then they have a decent chunk of men on the inside, should Aegon attack the city like we're kind of expecting. In fairness, the Tyrell armies are there currently, but how much can they be relied upon? Friends in the Reach recall. Maybe there's going to be even more friendlies inside the wall. And some will be gone by the time Aegon marches on King's Landing anyway, don't forget, they are being sent down to Storm's End. Nymeria is the only one going up there publicly, so the spearmen will be attached to her, but it's possible that Tyene will have access to them as well, should she need it. When we went through the many, many possibilities of the Sand Snakes in King's Landing back in Dance, we spoke about even Nymeria or Tyene being a soldier on the inside for Aegon slash Ariane, whoever. Well, that's going to become all the more dangerous if they do have those 300 spears inside, ready to attack the depleted defenders on their weak side or open up the gate or whatever it might be. That could really swing an entire battle. And that's just with the two of them. Now they actually have a fighting force as well. It fits in with what we were saying last time about the Dornish creeping out from their borders, playing on the big stage. They're finally going to come out of their southern, well-bordered and separate kingdom. This could just be the advanced force, these 300. If everyone from Dawn remains on the same page, then we could also have those two waiting armies doing the tricksy thing as well. They can say, yeah, we're going to come and help defend against Aegon and the Golden Company, and then they could actually do the opposite. They could go back on their word and betray. George has reminded us of the untrustworthiness, if you really want to call it that, of the Dornish earlier on in the chapter with that reference to the young dragon. So there's just some seed setting going on here. The Lannister pre-planned trap that was discussed back in Feast and Dance, if it still went ahead, I don't think it's clear if Cersei got all that sorted before her imprisonment, would have also failed because Balin Swan wouldn't be with them now anyway to catch his glimpse of Tyrion, and their main target of Tristane would have been missing as well. He's still at Stunsbeer, nice and safe, and perhaps soon enough, all Draen will have left. However, it's ever important to remember that Marcella has gone. She is with Nymeria's band travelling north to King's Landing. 
So she's another aspect to soon join the thousands of other aspects that will be in the Wind's King's Landing storyline. We're all definitely looking forward to seeing where she fits in. And to be honest, Cersei meeting her daughter again is probably a pretty major potential or likely reunion that we've not given its due consideration in the past. That would be beyond major for Cersei's character and would have a really large effect on the King's Landing plot, I think. But that's as far as Arianne gets before her thoughts spring back to the East and to the eldest of her brothers. Just like in Arianne 1, the Quentin question dominates all. It's pretty much a straight repeat from the last chapter, to be honest. Wondering where he is, why he's not with John Connington, if he was successful in marrying Daenerys. Most telling is that she again thinks of King Quentin as being silly, and that's the second time she's used such as a description. Arianne cannot take him seriously as such, which we could see as maybe being disrespectful, we could label it as being unfair given our own time of Quentin, but we could definitely see it as being problematic if Quentin were to return on Danny's arm. That doesn't make for a good working relationship, does it? If the future ruler of Dawn thinks that her boss, the consort of the ruler of all Westeros, is silly and she doubles down on why Daenerys could surely never want Quentin as well. He's too dull, he's not dashing, he's not wicked, essentially he's not Dario. We can see how closely Arianne's thoughts mirror Barristan's here and while some are on point and fair, like with Barristan, some of them are startling generalisations that don't account for Danny's actual personality at all. At least Arianne has the excuse of never having met Daenerys, unlike Barristan, but still it's not cool. And her overconfidence makes a reappearance here as well. Like her brother before her, Arianne is convinced of Dawn's worth being apparently treasured above all. She thinks, she'll want Dawn though. If she hopes to sit the Iron Throne, she must have Sunspear. Arianne, all the Martells, treat that as fact, but is it? If Danny were to come over with all three dragons, her Unsullied, her Swords, her Freeman, her Dothraki, and that's before the others that she doesn't even know about yet, does she need Dawn? It would make for an easier path, sure. I don't think she'd turn down the option if she could get it, but need? Does she need it? I think this might be the inflated ego of a prince and princess of Dawn talking here, overestimating their own value. Again, they are valuable, they're not wrong, and Barry would agree, but they aren't the only option. So the idea that Danny will simply do whatever she's asked in order to gain them is just foolish. It's not considering all the angles, the fact that there will be other suitors as well, that Danny will have her own thing going on, that she's a thinking, real, fully formed person. Last time we did mention that Ariane and many others, view Daenerys as this 2D shape that will just do as she's told or jump at the first chance of Westeros she gets or can essentially be told or persuaded to do anything. And we know how far away that is from the truth. That's always been the case. Even more so now, probably. So Ariane goes through other possibilities. Maybe it is Daenerys who's come and this Aegon thing is just an attempt to keep her secret. How would Ariane react if that is the case? And note, she doesn't think in terms of what that means for allying with Dawn. She thinks about having to kneel to her brother. So for all the protesting that Arianne did in her last chapter about her feelings for Quentin or how her role for Dawn was top priority, we see that the sibling relationship slash rivalry still very much lives on. It's not resolved. It's not an immaturity of the past. It's still in the present. It still matters what position they both end up in and who has to pay homage to who. So Arianne's personal growth, while going very well, is still not complete. This kind of thing is still dominating her mind. And I must say that Nina had some brilliant notes about this in that History of Westeros live stream, if you haven't listened, I'd go back and search for that now because, well, those thoughts, that was about Ariane 1, but they're being proven completely true here that this still really affects Ariane in a myriad of ways and is a big part of her personality still. So yeah, well done Nina and everyone. I would encourage you to go and find those. For now, Ariane tries to fob herself off of thinking about it. She tells herself it'll be no big deal and anyway, it's out of her hands. We know it's actually not going to be an issue. 
of course, but it is interesting to see how much it still bothers her and it definitely wouldn't be something she could just forget if it did turn out to be true. But of course, there's also still that sadness for us, the readers, that Quentin really didn't think the same thing at all about Ariane. But she'll never know that, I suppose. And perhaps more worryingly, she includes this little barb at the end of her thoughts. I pray Daenerys treats him more gently than she did her own brother. So this is a remnant from the ending of Ariane 1, that little jab to annoy us. Clearly, Ariane has gone fully on board with that rumour. She's taking it as fact that Daenerys intentionally had Viserys killed and didn't do anything about it. We spoke a lot last time about the injustice of that, and how it was another preview of how Westeros in general will view Danny's coming. So we don't need to go over it again here, we covered that plenty last week, but George is keeping up the reminder for us, he's just shoring that theme up. It's only once Ariane does clear her thoughts of Quentin and Danny, she realises that Elia has added Cave Explorer to a growing list of favourite adrenaline activities. She has not returned from her search of the cave's depths, and she hasn't gone out the front. So we get tension straight off, because we most likely zoom back to Egret's tales of Gendel's children up in the wall and how they got lost, or even the size and depth of the cave that Bran resides in. Now this might not be any different again, remember, and we have to wonder if our fan favourite is going to have run into some very serious trouble. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's few things worse that I can imagine than getting lost underground. No, I don't want to think about that too closely. Shouting for Elia doesn't work as if it would, even if Elia could hear them, so Ariane organises a search party immediately. She is responsible for the girl after all. Alaria's girl. And Alaria already fears the death of her children through war. She definitely doesn't need to lose one just to curiosity. And Elia is the half-sister of Ariane's much closer cousins, the older Sand Snakes. But beyond that, how can Ariane decide the fate of a nation if she can't keep a teenager safe? Besides, I think she quite likes her really. As we would obviously expect with this being Westeros, the first thing noted by these would-be rescuers is that the caves do indeed go much deeper than expected. Of course they do. Have these guys not heard of George? What did they expect? They go deep and they go complicated in the form of twisting, snaking passageways leading to a hundred different possibilities, all of them with black holes on either side. It's the easiest place in the world to get lost and one of the most scary, especially in my opinion. We always love that idea of what can lie undiscovered down beneath the earth, especially with that hint of the children of the forest. It's another reason I love this area of Westeros so much, because there's the potential to find out loads about what is waiting here down in the dark beneath the surface, these remnants of the original world. So yes, I do find this passage very exciting in terms of what could be found. What they come to first is a gigantic cavern, larger than your average man-made hall. Aside from some bats, it remains quite empty, with three more passages leading off of it. One is very, very small, perhaps suited more for a child, hint, hint, than an adult or a human. They leave that one and they split up to try the others, which is always a good precursor to something bad happening, isn't it? Garibald and Joss, they take one. Damon and Ariane, another. Interesting pairings, isn't it? This is a search by right now, I know, but we've still got to wonder if we might see a John Egret impression at some point. Remember what they got up to down deep in the caves. But not right now. The search remains and the deeper they go deep quickly as well, down steep passages, rough and tough and even wet underfoot. It's not easy going at all. And then all of a sudden, they come out into another, even more majestic cave, five times the size of the last one. And it is surrounded by a forest of stone columns. So the interest meter shoots way up. We always like to make comparisons to a Skyrim or a Legend of Zelda feel on this podcast. Well, it doesn't get much more bloody Skyrim than this, does it? Ancient civilizations and secrets deep down beneath the earth. My blood is definitely going now. This is my kind of chapter, especially when Damon lifts his torch and looks around. Look how the stone's been shaped, he said. Those columns and the wall there. See them? Faces, said Ariane. So many sad eyes staring. This place belonged to the children of the forest. 
Yes, yes, yes. My kind of thing. Absolutely my kind of thing. I love learning about the children in general. And let's face it, I don't think any of us would have put money on them turning up in an Ariane chapter of all places. A Dornish character, remember. That's supposed to be like the opposite of what we associate with the children, all the way up there above the wall. This arc was supposed to be about the politics of Westeros and the coming of dragons, not the ancient, mostly northern-associated children. Which makes me love the inclusion all the more. It's a reminder that before all your political games and conquests, long before dragons were a thing, all of this was the children's. They stretched from the north all the way down here. They covered the continent. Westeros is theirs. They are how it's meant to be. They are in tune with the land. You are all strangers. Plus, we get to learn a little more. We learn that they didn't just carve faces into trees, but into stone as well, apparently. This was a practice done from the very beginning, all across the continent, not just the north. Of course, the other option is that these stone columns are actually ancient trees or roots that have been turned to stone by age. We can never rule out anything in this area, to be honest. We just don't know. Now, I'm going to try and rein myself in. I'd be quite happy to concentrate on this side of things for the rest of the chapter if I was allowed to. But it turns out George is merely teasing us again, just laying some crumbs in the political chapter to remind us of the truly big overall storylines. Ones that probably will be hugely expanded on during wins at some point, but not quite yet. For now, we must wait. Oh, George, why do you tease? Please just let me keep going on about it. So for now, we do unfortunately have to leave the children behind, much to my chagrin. Joss and Garibald have found Elia. She was having a whale of a time doing her best mirror read impression, fishing with her bare hands in a little underground pool, as if we needed any more comparisons to Bran's cave. Instead of being impressed by the girl's apparent non-care of potentially being lost, Ariane chastises her cousin again. And let's be fair, as much as we like Elia, it could have gone very, very bad if she had become lost in those caves. You get the idea that we just barely scratched their surface this time round. And though it might have been fun to search ever deeper for our causes, even Elia's bravery might have faltered with no light or sense of direction. Although she did catch two fish to give her credit. And oh yeah, the walls echo the word died over and over. Definite Bran Cave vibes. Outside the cave, Ariane continues her role as the elder, as the leader of the group. She does what she probably wishes someone had done a bit more of her in years past, by trying to get through to Elliot that this is not a game. This is the most serious of missions. They don't have the safety net of being in Dawn like Ariane did. There are only seven of them, and only three of those are fighters. They're going ever further into an invasion zone, with the biggest of decisions awaiting them. There's no room for distractions or for Ariane to be worrying about what Elliot is up to. It costs them enough now... Later, when they are actually in the company of Jonkon or Aegon, it could really cost them. Much to our dismay, Ariane commands that there is to be no more Lady Lance persona until they are back in Sunspear. <laughs> okay, good luck Ariane. Not only because Ariane needs to concentrate, but because Elia could be used as a hostage if people knew of her true identity, which she implores the younger girl to keep secret for now. Ariane does make an astute point that we did kind of touch upon earlier and we will again later. These are swords, men who will change sides if the money is right. That is less true for the Golden Company than most others, but can still be proven correct. Or perhaps John Connington will simply turn out to be an enemy. They don't know yet. Either way, Elia cannot fall into the wrong hands. And Elia protests at this. Like Damon and everyone else, her bastard status has been stamped into her. She's been told she's worth less compared to a trueborn, especially to one like Ariane. And Ariane reminds us of her feelings about Oberyn when she comforts Elia. She tells her she is worth more than a chest of gold to Duran, that she'd be ransomed the same as any other family member. And for my money, I think she's probably right. I do think Duran would pay up. It's actually quite nice to see the effect that these rather simple words have on young Elia. All she's needed is for someone to tell her she's worth something. 
Still, Ariane wants more. This is important stuff and she wants a guarantee. So she basically copies her father in asking for a specific oath. One sworn on the bones of Oberyn Martell. It was the same technique used to bind the Elder Sand Snakes. Durant asked for an oath on Oberyn's grave. Ariane says bones. It's pretty much the same thing. Now we can question whether those Elder Free will actually stick to their words. We've debated that quite a bit in the past. But Duran and Ariane were certainly convinced that they would at the time. And so it is again with Ariane here, as Elia swears. The love for her late father is simply too strong. At least that's how Ariane sees it. She would be very unlikely to break any oath she made on her uncle's remains. I do want to include here as well that Ariane, she does threaten to send Elia back, even though logistically that's pretty much impossible at that point. It just wouldn't work. So Elia doesn't catch on to that, or she doesn't want to mock the boat at least. So for now, the two cousins are friends again. Elia agrees and heads off to sleep after her big adventure. Whereas Ariane asks the same question that we did in Ariane 1. Why did Duran send Elia in the first place? Damon suggests it was an act of vengeance, and he might not be so far off. We did speak about it last time, but I think a lot of the point is to make Ariane realise what she was like at that age and to make her feel more grown up, to give her some responsibility and care and usher her along in that self-development mode. But there probably is also an element of, look what you used to do to everyone else in your younger years. See, now you get it, don't you? The chapter progresses now as Ariane and friends finally make contact with the Golden Company and they do so at Mistwood slash Mistfall depending on which line you're reading. This is the home of House Mertens as we covered last week. A pretty small house that's had almost zero bearing on the story so far. Ariane is smart enough to approach with caution. Technically they've been invited but first you've got to make sure who you're walking in on. What if the rumours aren't true or the company's been beaten back or the Lannisters are here in some force? Joss Hood goes ahead to scout for us, but really only comes back with a choice. He says he saw the walls being guarded, and supplies obviously being collected from wagons bringing in such and such from the surrounding countryside. They're building a war chest, essentially, to take back to Jonkon and fund the war that they're waging. But more importantly, Joss also spied golden banners. Problem is, there's no wind. So gold could mean the Golden Company, but it could also mean Baratheon, and therefore Lannister by association. We know what Baratheon really means at the moment. House Merton's arms, a horned owl, are white and grey and they're nowhere to be seen, which would suggest the castle has fallen, and that these are the Golden Company. That would explain the wagons as well, but it's still a choice for Ariane. It's the first real marker she has to pass through as the leader. Everything's been pretty straightforward so far on their journey, but now it's down to her. It's got to be one or the other, and she makes the decision thusly. We must take the risk, she told her party. Her father's caution had served Dawn well. She had come to accept that, but this was a time for her uncle's boldness. On to the castle. Yes, Oberyn is very much on her mind at the moment, and it's interesting to see how she's going to use his influence as well as her father's. She wants to make her own mark here, and though she and Durand might be on the same team now, that doesn't mean she buys into 100% of his techniques when she still has her own. So the party approaches, although not with their banners up. Ariane wants caution in that as well. After being stopped by three guards on the way in, they are taken to the two sergeants in charge, young John Mudd and Chain. And these are two that we've not specifically met yet during John Con's interactions back in Dance, although he does spy a Mudd when first meeting the Golden Company, so perhaps that was young John. But for the sake of argument, they're new to us. And they are pretty useful for getting across what the Golden Company is all about. Old names and backstories forged into something entirely different but mixed with current circumstances. As we'll come to cover in a moment, each of them have family histories that extend back into the stories of Westeros, as is supposed to be the deal with most of the company. The Muds, as we know, were ancient kings up in the Riverlands. They ruled from Old Stones. They claimed to have ruled for a thousand years. Rob and Catelyn informed us of some of their glorious backstory back in Storm, and all of that has been distilled, apparently, into young John Mud, who isn't young, 
doesn't have a real or courtly bone about him, and is so rough around the edges that Ariane can scarcely believe he's even a knight. Which makes complete sense. Young John has spent his entire life as a sellsword, in this specific company in fact. He's been going from payday to payday, killing in order to earn, and living the camp life. We know this because his father, Old John, did it before him. There might be a huge line of muds going all the way back through. Or maybe someone just took the name Mud at some point, it's impossible to know. But it brings up one of the core questions we have to ask about the Golden Company. Many are coming back to reclaim land, or castle, or title. Some might even be worthy of that, but what of those who aren't? Should they be allowed to do so because of a name that may or may not be theirs? Should you let someone unfit for rule take on that ancient title regardless of capability? And let's be fair, we're prejudging here. Just because young John doesn't fit your usual mould of knight or lord doesn't necessarily mean he can't rule or would be bad as a leader of people, but it will often be the case. But if you're in charge of the Golden Company, you can hardly say, okay, well, you can have your long-lost title back, the one that was stolen from you, but you can't have yours because you don't quite have the accent for it. So if the company are successful and do start repaying their debts, so to speak, we could see a real flux of the ruling class and who gets to be a member. I think this might be a bigger storyline than we might originally think, actually. If Aegon does win the throne, if everything goes the Golden Company's way and they get to start being given all these things, it's going to have a real effect and not everyone's going to be happy about it, of course. Not just the people getting chucked out of their castle or having their title taken back or whatever, but just the nobility in general, that ruling class, is going to be a big upset, really will upset the equilibrium, as if Aegon's coming isn't going to do that enough. But let's move on to the second member we're meeting here, Chain. So named because of the massive chain he uses as a weapon. He's going to claim some similar backstory in a moment. His ancestor, apparently, fought on the red grass field for Damon Blackfire, so you can see why he's all in as well. But he presents much the same type of image and personality as young John. As we'll see now over the following pages, they back up what we've been saying on the Golden Company in this chapter. Not everyone is gold. They aren't all noble. They don't all look the part. They aren't always nice. So it's important, probably, that Ariane has this impression early on, lest she get carried away with a song or a story. It's not that. This is an army. A varied, hungry, brutal army. Jonkon and Aegon might be one thing. Many of them might be. But that doesn't mean all their men are the same thing. But that's getting slightly ahead of ourselves. For now, Ariane is just meeting these two. Though that first impression is one that's the opposite to what she thinks of as knights, like we mentioned. The way they talk, or look, or act. It is another bit of prejudice on Ariane's part, but she's not too far off the truth. We definitely wonder what kind of welcome they'll be providing, especially when we focus on that chain whip. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to get to see that in action at some point. You must assume that we would. Kind of hope we do. That does sound cool to read about. Luckily, it turns out that that tension about what they'll do can maybe be dissipated at the beginning. Ariane announces who she is and what they're doing there, and the two sergeants couldn't be more welcoming. They provide bed, horses, provisions, and word ahead to Griffin's Roost as well. What more could a lady want? Well... This lady could want clues, which is what Ariane sniffs for when she asks if it's John Connington she'll meet there at Griffin's Roost. Instead, she's told it's Halden Halfmaester, which is cool. We like Halden. We last saw him very much in his element in Griffin's Roost and being a very valuable part of this invasion. Once Ariane meets a character we actually know, it really will seem like these two storylines are merging, so it's exciting to see that name on the page for the first time. Now plainly, that was all young John intended to say. Maybe he does speak uncouthly, but he knows when information is important enough to protect. Chain? Eh, not so much, as he lets slip that John Connington, old Griff himself, is on the march. Aha! Very, very interesting, and an actual update on the invasion then. We haven't had any of those since John Con's final dance chapter, really. Did we get some in the 
epilogue? Yeah, we probably did, but not a lot. Now, we don't get any details just yet on where John is going or what the next step is, though I'd bet the majority of us have some pretty strong ideas. But merely the activity is exciting enough just knowing he's doing something, that they are on the move, the story is progressing, yeah, that's pretty good. They're going to be moving on to a next stage that we're very likely going to see or be a part of. And that's the stuff we really want to hear, isn't it? That's the bit we want to be there for, present for. When young John tells Chain to be quiet, Chain doesn't see the point. He says Ariane represents Dawn, and Dawn is going to be their new teammate. So she can be told everything, can't she? Why not? That perhaps gives us a clue that Chain might not be the best for a leadership position, maybe. Ariane thinks to herself that nothing is decided, but merely the fact Chain says that gives away how much Dawn joining is a given thing. If the whole company knows about it, they're pretty confident. Clearly, they really are part of John Con's plan, and the invite is genuine. That is very much important to know. So the scene is already solidifying for Ariane, the decision is already rushing towards her. For now, she plays it slow. It seems she's found the leaky tap, but she can wait to get a bit more out of him. That can be done later. For now, it's just good to get that confirmation of John's intentions. And hey, also, it might be valuable just to know it might provide a bargaining position if they really do want Dawn that badly. In the meantime, there is to be a feast. When Chain and Young John took Mistwood, they placed its current ruler, Lady Mertens, into captivity. So up we go to the Tower of the Owls, which is a cool name, and Ariane finds that Lady Mertens is actually quite the character. She's taken a rest in captivity very well. She's even labelled as cheerful. And she tells us that the men of the castle, her sons and grandsons, went off when Renly called his banners, and they've never been back since. Just consider how long ago that seems in this story, Renly. I mean, that is ages ago, isn't it? So you can see where the idea that the Stormlands has been forgotten and neglected comes from. It literally has. For what it's worth, we don't know any of Lady Merton's offspring, we haven't met any, or on which side they find themselves now, we've really got no information. She's confident that whatever they've been up to since, news of their home being captured will drag them back down to take care of it. We've seen similar with Red Ronnet and Griffin's Roost. And we can imagine the scene, can't we, of these sons and grandsons that have gone up to join in the war, whether because of duty, whether because of excitement, whatever. But we have seen a kind of framework for this, of people being bored of home and wanting to seek that better fortune. Sometimes they badmouth where they've come from, but as soon as someone else tries to take it, well, back they go. We've seen that lots of times. We've no idea if Lady Mertens is correct about this being the next wave to hit Mistwood, but she's confident as she dismisses off as she dismisses the Golden Company as mere thieves, a lesser class of people, bandits essentially. So you see what we mean about how they look and act, the Golden Company I mean, not being well received by the current ruling class. A lot of people just aren't going to accept that they can now be the same as them. They don't like that. If the new king does start putting both types of people on that same level, it's probably not going to go well. Lady Mertens backs up her claim by pointing to the wagons and wagons of food that the Golden Company are gathering. She calls that theft. They call it foraging. Hmm, foraging. That word specifically reminds us of the Lannisters and the bloody mummers back in the Riverlands. That's what they said. They said it was foraging back there in the middle of the war. The Golden Company, they're not the bloody mummers, but you can see how the lines blur and semantics gets involved. However you want to frame it, the small folk lose out to feed an army that's coming to rule them, that they'd never asked for. Maybe they're doing it slightly more nicely, at least we can hope so, but that doesn't make them angels. As we see here, with young John hinting at making Lady Mertens regret those words. Hmm. To break this up, Ariane asks Lady Mertens if she and her people have been treated well. It's all the better to ascertain what kind of people she's dealing with in the Golden Company and Joncon. We find that the lady herself has been kept safe, and in general her people have been treated... Well, this isn't an ironborn invasion, let's say that. This is nothing close to what Euron was doing on the Shield Islands. It's not what the Mountains men were doing in the Riverlands. But she still tells us that there has been rape among some of the serving girls. John Mudd, he refutes that again. He says John Connington has ordered for there to be none of that, and that they follow orders. 
Okay, so that is very good of John Connington to say such a thing, to keep Aegon's image as squeaky clean as possible. Maybe he's being noble as well, but it's mainly the Aegon thing. But perhaps it's not very realistic once people are out of his eye shot. We have a quote here. Chain nodded. Some girls was persuaded, might be. The same way our small folk were persuaded to give you all their crops, Lady Merton said. Melons or maidenheads, it's all the same to your sort. If you want it, you take it. Again, the semantics. Again, the blurred lines. Lady Mertens calls it rape. Chain calls it persuasion. I think we know who's right. It may well be that John Con does keep to his orders, personally, and what he tells his men, but it may well be that young John does keep to his orders. It might well be that some of the Golden Company have genuinely engaged in consensual sex. There's nothing outside the realm of possibility there. We've seen that before. But we'd be fools if we thought the reverse wasn't happening as well, or either. Lady Mertens gives Ariane a message to pass on to John Con that his mother would be ashamed, Lady Connington of the previous generation. It almost injects some humour into this not very funny situation. The idea of this old lady trying to scold an invading lord. Again, John Con seems to be trying his best to keep things as noble as possible, but 100% nobility simply isn't possible with any army, let alone a sellsword company drunk on their own success, as horrible as it is for us to think about. Ariane, for her part, thinks perhaps she will tell John Con exactly that. In the meantime, she tells her father as she sends back her second as she sends back her second raven late as she sends back her second raven later that night. This one full of much more interesting this one full of much more interesting information than the first, we're sure. And next up in the chapter, we get something completely out of left field, as Ariane, again later that night, is returning from sending off that raven, and she walks in on Elias Sand kissing Feathers in a window seat. Now, you wouldn't think it from a man named Feathers, would you? And he backs up that image, in fact, by immediately jumping up and stammering and basically acting a lot more maesterish. Yes, the oath lines are being blurred here, there and everywhere in this chapter, aren't they? We've actually got to wonder, has this happened before in the narrative? A maester breaking his role and getting involved with whether the people he serves or their guests or anything like that? Has it come up? I can't remember. Maybe you can. Do tell me if I'm wrong. But you figure it probably has been going on on some level, probably everywhere with the younger maces of the world and we're just not aware of it. Definitely do let me know if I've forgotten because you'd think that would be fairly important if it has. Either way, Feathers is very quickly dismissed with Ariane thankful that she stepped in before it went any further and she then turns to scolding Elia so quickly after thinking she just had the problem solved earlier on. It really is a lesson for Ariane in parenting, essentially. There's always something new. You can never quite keep up. She thought she'd reached an agreement with young Elia, but apparently not. So Ariane has to put on her boss hat again and lay down the law. The comparisons to her younger self are much stronger this time, as she notes that Elia is the same age now that Ariane was when she lost her virginity to Damon. She really is supposed to be seeing herself in her cousin, I think. All the better to understand her father, most likely. To avoid being a hypocrite, she tells Elia she's free to do as she wishes back in dawn, but not during the mission. Even that, even just a kiss with someone of your own party could ruin all. So please, please, please be a team player and just be quiet in the corner. Stop being an issue for me at every turn. She's almost begging at this point. The fact that Feathers is a serving man also doesn't escape Marianne's notice. He is too low for someone of Elia's stature. Of course, you could argue the same thing about Damon, couldn't you? For her part, Elia doesn't argue back. She promises to keep to the oath this time, although you'll note she only promises to not kiss Feathers again, nothing more. Something to keep her eye on, I think. The journey continues now. Mistwood is left behind as we head for Griffin's Roost and plunge right back into the wonderful Rainwood. It takes just over a week for them to traverse the beautiful scenery. You really can hear the sound of the rain upon the thick canopy, I think. And for the first four days, Jane and his own group accompany them. So, Ariane noticed early on that he was the leaky tap, and without young John Mudd around to remind him, 
Ariane's able to put her skills to use and get him jabbering. The first step is to get him talking about his own life, which is where we learn of that grandfather on the Redgrass field. Chain almost seems to be the perfect representative of what the Golden Company is. He has Westerosi heritage that's been hammered into him from a young age. Ariane notes that he was taught the common tongue and told that he was of Westeros despite never coming anywhere near physically. This journey across the narrow sea matters to people like this. Some of them have been waiting their whole lives, some of them have been told that's their entire purpose and that generations upon generations have been waiting for this chance. So it matters, it's important. And his whole life is exactly what Ariane learns about as she lets Chain talk and talk. It's probably not often he finds a woman interested in listening to him, much less a princess, and Ariane's skills paint her as hanging on his every word. She knows how to act. She's more than adept at this, and this time she does employ her father's patience. She listens to stories about young John, about someone called Two Swords, and about Harry Strickland's favourite elephant and any number of other things, and she never presses. She lets Chain come to her which he eventually does on the fourth day when he happens to mention once we have Storm's End. Ooh, interesting again. In all fairness, we pretty much knew this was the direction they were going for from back in dance, but it's still cool to see the words on the page. It's exhilarating for us because we've been waiting so long, especially if you are like me and you just want to see this bloody castle. And Chain is talking about it like it's fact, which implies that they've moved forward with some plan or whatnot and increases our hunger to see exactly what that is. Whether it's news or not to us, it definitely is to Ariane. And she's smart enough not to react to Chain's slip, but inside, her mind is whirring. These guys really are not messing around. Griffin's Roost and all these other coastal castles, they're one thing. But like we said earlier, Storm's End is quite another. And it gives me, uh, just gives me so much pleasure to see one of the very best castles in the whole of Westeros getting its due here. Storm's End is the best of the crop, let's remember. Its military record is exemplary, its strength is inarguable. Ariane knows full well the sonic boom that would occur that this would send across Westeros if John Con and Aegon are able to take it, as John Con also told us in his dance chapter. It will change everything, and this really hits Ariane. It really cements, oh yeah, they're, again, not messing around. This is no trivial thing. They really, really are going for it. And you'll all know that I do relish these next few paragraphs as Ariane goes through Storm's End's strength compared to other castles. In fact, she reminds us of a good many details about Storm's End. Super cool details I love to revisit. Again, I will tell you to watch out for similar in the second episode of 100 Questions on the Winds of Winter because this will come up. Storm's End does come up. I think it might even be the first question, so keep your ears out for that. For now, you see what I mean about this place finally being brought back to everyone's attention. It was forgotten, it was not given its due, but now everyone cares. Now everyone is thinking about how strong and important it is, and that's before it's even been taken. This is the stuff I'm talking about. After so long, events in this part of the world will swirl around Storm's End once again, as they have before. And you know what? I'm not even going to resist. I'm going to give you the quote from Ariane about Storm's End here at length, because, well, we haven't had the opportunity much, have we, in Scraps and Scrolls, so let's take our chance right now. The seat of House Baratheon for three centuries, of the ancient Storm Kings for thousands of years before that. Storm's End was said by some to be impregnable. Ariana heard men argue about which was the strongest castle in the realm. Some said Castle Rock, some the Eyrie of the Arons, some Winterfell in the frozen north. But Storm's End was always mentioned too. Legend said it was raised by Brandon the Builder to withstand the fury of a vengeful god. Its curtain walls were the highest and strongest in all the Seven Kingdoms, 40 to 80 feet in thickness. Its mighty windowless drum tower stood less than half as tall as the high tower of Old Town, but rose straight up in place of being stepped, with walls thrice as thick as those to be found in Old Town. No siege tower was tall enough to reach Storm's End battlements. Neither Manganel nor Trebuchet could hope to breach its massive walls. 
Yes, again, if you know me at all, you'll know I quite like that quote. And it's while listing the castle's many attributes that Ariane becomes confused over exactly what John Con means to do. She has supplied her own evidence, a siege would be near impossible, history says as much. So what is it that John Con actually wants to do? And we're still asking the same questions, aren't we? So Damon Sounding Board, Damon Sounding Board, makes a return as Ariane puts the same question to him, and he's just as confused as well. John Con will have his hands full fighting Lannisters and Tyrells soon enough, why attack Stannis of all people? Because remember, Storm's End, technically, still owned by Stannis. Unless it's an ally he's looking for. But that wouldn't make sense if he wants Aegon to be king, because we all know that Stannis isn't going to back down. And even if he was, he's also in the least able position to help them at all. He's all the way up in the north, he's not going to do a thing. So it's Arianne that provides the true answer. Stannis himself isn't present in the mind of Jon Con whatsoever. It's Storm's End that will be the announcement. If Jon Con's forces should gain it by whatever means, well, it is the sonic boom that we mentioned a moment ago. Westeros will take note, and the enemies of the Lannisters, who are not in short supply, might begin to see that another route is available to them and they might find, hey, we've got another option. We know how quickly that kind of thinking can snowball, and so does Jon Con. Indeed, he's banking on it. Thus, Arianne sends a third and most important raven yet. Whoever they're doing this for, they are all in. It doesn't really get much bigger than that in terms of influencing Arianne and Doran's decision, does it? Well, maybe it does. We wait for the end of the chapter for that. After four days in the Rainwood, Ariane says goodbye to Chatty Jane and hello to Lysonomar, sent down from Griffin's Roost with a column of soldiers to escort her back to the castle. Lysano we've met before back in John Con's first chapter in Dance. You might remember that he is the Golden Company spymaster. So Ariane is delving ever deeper into that inner circle as she progresses through this chapter. Like I said right at the beginning, we really do see a lot more of the Golden Company here. And let's also consider that the Golden Company, well, they're very... Well, they're very much linked to Varys, aren't they? In a way, you could see it as like someone within Varys's like coaching tree, or management tree. We don't know if there is actually a connection between them, but there could be. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, when Jon Con first met Lysino back in Dance, he nearly mistook him for a woman. But Arianne focuses on the fact that he looks Targaryen, again, with the Varys connection. He has the lilac eyes, he has the white hair. Yet she also thinks that there's something unidentifiable that makes her skin cruel. So that's something else to keep an eye on there, because that doesn't really get expanded on here. I'm not really sure what that is. Hmm. So just worth thinking about there. So Lysano, he's pretty much the dead opposite of young John Mudd and Chain in terms of how he acts. So again, Ariane is getting a good cross-section of all involved. This one is all manners and court pleasantries, as you'd expect given his role. Remember from Dance that so far he's also proven to be fairly effective, and is definitely supportive of this Aegon plan, which we see here by him certainly referencing that Aegon is indeed a Targaryen. He's also not so leaky a tap as Chain. He confirms for Ariane that Jon Con and Aegon have departed Griffin's Roost but gives nothing else away. He is a court master, this is his role. Chain was barely a player, this is the type of opponent that Ariane must get much more used to. His riders, unfortunately, prove no more forthcoming as Lysona keeps up the disarming chat while supplying no details. He knows how to do it. And if there had been more time maybe, Ariane would have tried a different tactic, but she's growing impatient. She needs to know the real stuff soon, so at the end of the fifth day, she goes for the upfront approach. Perhaps not the best symbol of her skills, but she wants to know. First, she asks about elephants. Lysono says they have a few, and that sounds like the most we're going to get from the guy to be honest. So she switches to dragons, and is told there is only one. Ariane claims that he means Aegon himself, but Lysono won't confirm. He'll know, as much as anyone, that the Dornish need to be won. Making them believe an actual dragon might be involved could be the way to do that. And Lysono laughs, he keeps it light, but Ariane sees that his eyes are cold. This isn't a joke. This dude is working. This is his job. Again, we'll say it again. So Ariane consents to playing the game a bit better than asking straight up questions. She does it using the metaphor of Savas, citing that dragons are needed for victory in that game. 
What she's really doing is asking Nisonima to sell their chances to her. Make your pitch. Why should I believe that you can actually do this? He starts off claiming that the Golden Company was founded by a dragon. Ariane says, no, not good enough. That was half a dragon and that doesn't make you all descendants. You're still sellswords. Why should I believe in you? And sure, you're one of the best sellsword companies, but your track record in this kind of venture is pretty lacking. Whether it's Bittersteel, the Blackfires, or Melee's the Monstrous, you all failed. So what makes this time any different? Lysino, though, he will not be knocked from his perch. He cites persistence. He cites near misses. He won't give in to Ariane's attacks, but she keeps it up. When Nisono says, some of those defeats were near things, she replies, some were not, and those who die in near things are no less dead than those who die in routes. Prince Duran, my father, is a wise man, and fights only wars that he can win. That's a pretty good line, and we can see how much she's brought into that company view of Duran Martel. Again, she is essentially asking, why should we risk it? If you fail, as you always have before, you can run away, as you always have before. Dawn, however, will be left to face new enemies made all alone, so why bother? We're not getting involved in anything less than a sure thing. Are you a sure thing? And we can see how much Lysono has resisted being taken down this path. He doesn't want to have to admit anything that might lose them Dawn as allies because he knows that they lack something that they'd rather have. He was quite vocal about it actually when we first met him. So far, Ariane only suspects, but she really does suspect. His final defense is to copy John Con's letter. He claims that Aegon is Elia Martel's son. Duran's nephew, Ariane's cousin. He implies that that should be enough, that they should honour blood and avenge Elia's memory. But as we know, Dawn seeks not just blood, but fire as well, as Ariane brings up. Shorba asks outright, where is Daenerys? Where are her dragons? And you'll note that Quentin is not mentioned here. And Lysono, he finally gives in. He admits it. Daenerys is still in Slaver's Bay. Her dragons, should they exist, are there with her. The Golden Company, Jonkon, does not have them. They chose a different path. And unmentioned is the fact, the confirmation, that yes, Quentin indeed did fail. Lysono's defence is that yes, they would rather have dragons if they could, but they don't. Dragons didn't come. So when that became clear, and John Connington supplied a different choice, they took that one. Swords and elephants, because it was that, or nothing. If they didn't choose that route, they'd never come back. They'd never make an attempt. So this is better than nothing, but it's basically what he's saying. It's the same question that we brought up last time for Duran. You don't want to miss the wave. Yes, things could go very, very wrong if Danny also does come west, but there's no evidence of that yet. Instead, you have Aegon. You have the perfect piece, who's essentially been grown in a lab to win Westeros. It's this or nothing, which is how Lysonu turns it around on Ariane. He says this, On the battlefield, give me elephants I can see and touch and send against my foes, not dragons made of words and wishes. The princess lapsed into a thoughtful silence, and that night she dispatched her fourth raven to her father. So you can see what I mean. This one is now the far more important raven, by a country mile. This is huge in terms of Ariane's choice. This is one of the biggest possible question marks that House Martel had to consider. We went over and over and over it in Ariane 1 and in this chapter as well. What about Daenerys? Well, now they know, or they have a working theory anyway. There is no real dragon here. Daenerys did stay east, Quentin did fail. And what that means for his fate apparently isn't considered right now. The important thing is that the Grand Martel plan to attach themselves to actual living dragons is, in absolute best case scenario, still a very long way away. Or much more likely, that plan is dead. So now comes that bigger question we discussed last time. Does Duran finally roll the dice? Does he go against his philosophy of only playing when you'll win? Or does he risk missing the wave of all the many repercussions that might have in his own kingdom? Or on the Rastorosi stage? Or if John Con and Aegon should be successful, don't forget. If he just doesn't sign up for it, and they actually do win the Seven Kingdoms, that will have its own bad marks against them as well. Which also means that Ariane's mission has now changed. Job one is done, there are no dragons. In many ways, she could consider it a closed case. 
If no dragons, then no nothing. But she can still see what chance this wave actually does have. She can still try to figure if Aegon is real. She has more to report yet before House Martell makes its final decision. So after this long, long chapter of moving through the Stormlands, we now return to the Taken Griffin's Roost, already much more prepared than when John Connington first returned to it. The banner of House Connington still flies, of course, but the gold of Baratheon has been switched out for the gold of the Golden Company. So it is that Arianne and her own company ride right down the Griffin's throat to enter the close of the chapter. The welcome inside is even warmer than Nysono's was, as Arianne meets a bunch of the Golden Company officers. Clearly, they also know how valuable Dawn will be if they can be gained, and they're more than willing to take a knee and kiss a hand in order to win that. There is one who stands out for Arian, though, the one among them who is not a fighter. Indeed, we make a welcome return to Halden Halfmaester. He's welcome as well, offering up rooms, but he also surprises her when he says they will not be staying. To reach John Connington, they must depart on the morning upon a ship. Where? demanded Arianne. Has no one told you? Halden Halfmaester favoured her with a smile thin and hard as a dagger cut. Storm's End is ours. The hand awaits you there. Whoa, okay, super boom, here we go. You can be kind of actually surprised that George doesn't just end the chapter right here because it would make for a hell of a cliffhanger, wouldn't it? Storm's End is down, it's been taken. John Con and Aegon have it. Oof, okay, well, let's recover from that. Maybe the fact that George doesn't end the chapter here indicates that we'll have already seen Storm's End fall by now and this wouldn't actually be a cliffhanger for the reader. That's very, very possible. Like we said, there could easily be a John Con chapter between Ariane 1 or 2, or even before Ariane 1, I suppose. We're almost hoping that there definitely has been because we really want to see how he gains Storm's End. We'll come back to that in a minute. For the moment, let's just focus on the news because this is big, whoa, what type of news? Storm's End has been won. The gigantic castle with the amazing record and the defensive setup and everything that we already covered earlier that has fallen. So that means the sonic boom will erupt. This will make everyone stand up and listen. This is the kind of news that will travel all the way to the wall and everyone much closer will really start to consider these many questions that we've been going over and over and over about what they're going to do with this invading force that they're obviously not going to be able to ignore anymore. And we're proven correct in our hunger for Storm's End to return as well. If they have taken it, then it seems almost certain that we will get to visit Aegon and Jonkron there at the site of their victory. We can picture it perfectly as the setting for Ariane 3, can't we? Of that being the setting for where she's introduced to them both. It couldn't work out much better for Jonkron, really. Making contact with Dawn in the Round Hall, in a huge building of evidence about how real you are. It doesn't get much more persuasive than that, does it? Much better than Griffin's Roost, anyway. And let's not forget the historical aspect here. Jaehaerys I was proclaimed king at Storm's End, so it seems perfectly set for Jon Con to repeat such now, to use this attention-grabbing victory as the perfect moment for the big reveal. And Arianne can even be there to witness it. It should be giving you chills, to be honest. This is the big stuff, like we talked about earlier. This is the stage. It doesn't get more important than this. Still, yeah, for our purposes, we are a little upset. It would be great news that we're likely to walk into Storm's End after this and finally meet it properly, but we also would have really, really liked to witness the falling, especially with the theories that we have on how that happened. And yeah, maybe we did, but we can only work with what we've got so far with these preview chapters, and we haven't seen it yet, so we're still hungry. We should also look at the wording, though. Howden says, Storm's End is ours. He doesn't say that it fell or that they won it, he just says it's theirs. So, considering what John Con said in Dance about taking it through guile or persuasion or whatever, we do have to wonder if there was even a battle at all, or is there just kind of some deal struck or some negotiation made, and then the actual battle, the real thing that we will get to see on page, is them versus the Tyrells to keep Storm's End. Again, lots of theories of that, we'd be very, very lucky to see it. Either way, the chapter doesn't end here. Howden makes his claim and we continue. In the immediate, 
Damon's not bothered about what happens to Storm's End, he's bothered about this idea of sailing across Shipbreaker Bay to get there. It's almost a reverse of the conversation between Duran and Balan Swan, where going by ship almost seems suspicious. Besides, Shipbreaker Bay is dangerous in the most peaceful of times, hence their name, but recently we've heard about a lot of different ships swirling around the Sea of Dawn, so it makes sense that the bay is going to be similarly busy. Haldon claims it's a matter of speed, and actually of safety as well. By land, it might take three days to deliver Ariane. By ship, only half a day. And that's a better option to keep Ariane safe, because he tells us that an army is descending upon Storm's End from King's Landing. And from the dance epilogue, we know this to be the Tyrells. So there we go, we're a little more satisfied now. Even if we have skipped over the initial taking of Storm's End by whatever means it happened, we will still have a major battle to come, a much, much larger battle, to actually keep it from the Tyrells. And like I said, to be fair, that's where more of our theories reside anyway, as Haldon confirms for us that Aegon intends to actually not let there be a third siege at all, and he's going to ride out to defeat the Tyrells out on the field instead. Whew. Big, big exciting news that has us super wanting to read on. This chapter does as good a job as that of any of these previous chapters, making us want the book in our hands. The conversation ends with Ariane and her friends being shown up to their rooms. They get a stunning view of Shipbreaker Bay, but Ariane and Damon are a bit distracted to really appreciate it right now. Damon takes one of the lines we were just considering. Quentin is not here. Daenerys is not here. Dragons are not here. And none of them are at Storm's End either. That is a huge part of their mission and the question. It's the bulk of it, really. He claims they have their answer. There's no dragons here, therefore there's nothing of Dawn's interest. It's the dragons that tilted everything. They were the ones that would change the walkers. You can't beat them, basically, unless you have one of your own, which no one else does. They were the ultimate guarantee of victory. That's what Duran wanted to know about. So clearly, Damon, he's of the opinion that they should just turn right around and head home. And some of that is just being keen to keep Ariane away from the battlefield, but a lot of it is because he genuinely thinks the mission is done, the choice is clear. And let's remember, he also thinks Aegon is a fake as well, so there's literally nothing for them. Of course, that does bring up the interesting question of, if Ariane were to indulge Damon's request, would they even be allowed to leave? John Con would not be happy about having Dawn so close and yet not being allowed to make his actual pitch. And if you were really to convince him that Dawn would never ally, well, hostages don't come much more valuable than Ariane, do they? If Dawn won't join you, then you could keep them from joining the enemy instead by keeping Ariane as a hostage. And imagine how long you could keep the ruse up anyway. You would have ages before you even needed to confirm to Duran that you've taken her prisoner. Maybe she would be allowed to straight up leave, but it also wouldn't be very surprising at all to see, at the very least, her forced to go to Storm's End and meet John Con and Aegon, regardless of what comes after that. As it happens, that's not an issue anyway, because Ariane wants to continue on. She wants to get a look at Aegon and try to ascertain the truth of his identity. Even without dragons, that still matters. It will still heavily influence Duran's decision. It's possible that they might not want to miss the wave at all. Damon still promotes caution. He does not believe that John Con and his Golden Company can defeat the strength of the Tyrells, even if it is Mace at their helm. But here we can see that Ariane is kind of getting caught up in the tale and the story. She figures that John Con wouldn't even try open battle instead of sitting in Storm's End unless he has some sort of master plan, because that does seem incredibly foolish. You've got the strongest castle in the world at your back, why would you leave it to go and fight a, assumedly, much more even battle out there in the field? So we do generally agree with her line of thinking. We do think that John Con has a plan. Though Damon says, well, maybe he's just an idiot that's going to lose. History has seen more than his fair share of those, it does happen. So he asks his princess again, please turn around and go home. Ariane now has the same thoughts we did. Who says she'll be allowed? And if that's the case, then it's better to keep everyone friendly for now. At least until she's met them and would have a plausible reason for turning away. Besides, her own curiosity still needs to be sated. To put Sir Damon at ease, she incites that she is Dawn now. The brave Oberyn is dead. The calculating Duran is old. She is the combination of them both. She has the spirit to do this, she says. To Damon, though, that's the whole point. She is Dawn. She's everything. 
So if she's delivered into the hands of the enemy and the relationship does go sour, well, what hope for Dawn then? Or if it's just simple as not wanting to walk into a war zone, he wants to keep her safe. Damon shows off his own bravery now by offering to go instead. She can keep face and show her intention to still go, but if things go wrong and the Tyrells do win, it's no harm, no foul. Hardly anyone will notice him and Ariana will be safe. And we've got to admit, that's pretty cool of him. That is a brave thing to do. That's a brave thing to say. Nice one, Damon. And Ariane gets the point. If she's there and the Tyrells win, then the Lannisters will know that Dawn was siding with the invaders and their wrath will come down upon them. Everything Duran has ever hoped to avoid will come to pass. She will have failed. It's another risk, as always, with Ariane's win dark so far. It is another choice. And she chooses, ultimately, to see it through. She says this. But my father entrusted this task to me, not you. Come the morrow, I sail to beard the dragon in its den. The preparation zone for this arc is done. Next Ariane, or maybe Jonkon chapter, will be the final smashing together of the Dornish and Targaryen arc. We will truly see it land in Westeros. It's coming. And there, the chapter closes. So hopefully you'll see what I was on about earlier on there, in that we really turned a corner at the end of this chapter. In terms of that decision, in terms of the information that Ariane needs to know about this invasion, we've really gone up a level, haven't we? Now we know the dragons aren't coming. Now we know that they've already taken Storm's Head, or at least that's what we're told. So those two pieces of information alone, they do change everything. And yet Ariane still wants more. She's not satisfied. She still needs to know. She's obviously still thinking that there is a chance maybe that Duran will still want to team up, that he'll still want to go through with this, or maybe she personally will. We haven't really covered the possibility that Ariane and Duran could disagree on what they need to do, and what will happen there, will Ariane disobey and just go for it anyway, will they split on that, that's very very possible. We can't really guess right now, that's just going to have to be something that waits for later, but yeah, definitely possible. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it, after they've come together, after they've had this um, reunion of sorts, how would that figure in if they really do just have opposite opinions? Because, well, Ariane is the one that's there. She's the one talking to them. So she would be in the driver's seat. But Durant still has his own lots of power. And in this one, yeah, we haven't talked as much about it. But don't forget there is still all that Dornish politics stuff about what's happening behind them. What's going on with the Dornish nobility. What's going on with the Dornish politics. And what's Darkstar up to. He could rile them all up and they could come for Durant. Or they could want to do this or they could want to do that. That's still very much a possibility. Because Ariana's left Dawn, they don't get as much focus. We're much more looking at the Stormlands and the actual crown politics now, but still they're looming. So even though Ariane has made a real leap forward here in this chapter, even though she's now with the Golden Company, even though she's with Howden, someone we know, even though she's mere steps away, apparently, just half a day away from John Con and Aegon, there's still lots to think about. There's still lots undecided. And what we could do is start going through all the many, many possibilities. I'm probably going to refrain from that, to be honest, because we've spoken quite a lot about Ariane already in this chapter, last chapter. And we probably did a bit of that on the History of Westeros live stream, so I'm not going to repeat it all for you in terms of the overall and where she might end up. But like I say, we've covered it. I definitely think that she will get to Storm's End, obviously. I think she's probably going to hang around with John Con and Aegon. I think marriage could easily be on the cards. And then, as we said in Ariane 1, there's lots of triangle things that could happen with Damon or what John Con's gonna think and all that many many kind of things I think they're all gonna end up in King's Landing personally but I'm skipping ahead I think that's further away I think there's much more to happen before that in terms of their meeting in terms of how they're gonna persuade Ariane that they really do have this stuff is Storm's End on its own enough to do that or maybe she's witness to them beating the Tyrells by whichever method by these many theories that we've got and maybe that's enough to convince her easily very much could be if she sees John Con slash Aegon in their element leading this army maybe she thinks yeah we could actually do this I mean especially don't forget if they win this battle against the Tyrells 
Well, that is a massive, massive part of the Lannisters' entire defence. Gone now. King's Landing's entire defence. They do not have a lot of people. Now, how much do they know about that situation and the numbers? Hmm, that remains to be seen, but they're probably going to be learning more about it every day. And as we said, that sonic boom has gone out now. Everyone will know. Everyone will see. Storm's End on its own is big enough. If they do defeat the Tyrells and that word gets out as well, hmm. That's going to persuade even more people. And don't forget that Ariane has more people to meet once she gets to Storm's End. Some of these highborns and nobles have been captured. We might get to meet a Selwyntarf. She might reunite with Silver Santagar. Imagine if we get to meet a Selmy, that'd be cool. I don't think that's been mentioned yet, but it's possible, who knows. And through them, plus others, we might already see the snowball in effect. We might be getting letters, or we might have people turning up saying, Hey, no, I want to go with you. I hate the Lannisters. The Lannisters suck. Because they do suck, and we know that people hate them in general. So once this option becomes clear and more solidified, yeah, that snowball is going to roll, and Ariane will be present for that. Or maybe it switches. Maybe the next chapter is a Joncon, and we get to see Ariane through someone else's eyes, which we have done before with the Watcher. So that's nothing new for us. So look, there you go. I said I wasn't going to go too far into future theories. I don't think I've gone too far because you could stretch really, really far with Ariane. You could talk about King's Landing. You could talk about what happens when Daenerys comes. All that kind of stuff. I've got lots of thoughts on that, but I'm not going to go into them because I think, again, we've got a much, much bigger thing to go through first, which is very, very exciting. It's going to be one of the major parts of this book. We know there's the Battle of Winterfell. We know there's the Battle of Marine to cover first. We're going to get them very, very early on. They're obviously the two biggest parts, but I don't think we should be shirking on Storm's End either. That is also going to be huge, 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 huge to the effect on central Westeros and therefore almost all of Westeros, like the six kingdoms almost. And it's going to affect a whole bunch of characters. It's going to affect the whole direction of the series. It's exciting to think about. And it's all going to happen in Storm's End. Don't worry, I won't go through that again for you. I think you know my feelings on it by now, but damn, it's exciting to get back there, to see it properly, to see it playing the role it was supposed to, making a triumphant return to that national stage. I said a little bit earlier, this is one of the very, very best chapters for really wanting to read forward. Oh yeah, I mean, to be fair, let's be fair to George, these preview chapters, they all do that. They all make us want to read more about that specific arc or just the book in general. But this one, because it is so expansive, because it is talking about this really massive, huge storyline going forward, one that we can probably even see more of than the Battle of Marine, and we haven't got to the north yet, so we haven't covered the Battle of Winterfell. So really, this probably is the one that just has the most gears to it, the most spinning cogs. So many things can come out of this meeting here. We can't even really begin to guess. To close, let me tell you just again about this chapter, about these two chapters. We're really, really lucky to get Ariane here. I'm so glad that this is how uh, George has chosen to deliver this information, that George chose these for preview chapters, because they're great. They are two brilliant, brilliant chapters. I've really, really enjoyed going through them. I wish we had a third, I really do. Ariane 3, please, George, deliver it next week if you can, because I'd love to go through another one. Don't mistake me, I enjoy the others as well, but I think these are my favourites so far. And I would be hard-pressed to choose between the two, if I'm honest with you. They're both superb about looking through Ariane as a person, that development that she's been on, looking back on the failed uh, Queen Maker plot, owning up to her part in that, and thinking about how it affected other people, and now transferring that onto a much bigger stage. This is the playoffs, not the pre-season, like I said on the History of Westeros podcast. And she's stood up for it, and so far she's delivered. I think we must say that. She's played this properly. As she's met the Golden Company, we saw how she played change. She did a very, very good job doing the opposite uh, against Lysona Mar. Now she's up against Howden, which seems fine so far. Next time we're going to see her really put her skills to use against Jonkon and the Ultimate and Aegon, of course, and the most important meeting in her family's history for quite some time. On top of that, we have had this 
background cat, Sir Damon Sand. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. He's got a lot of possibilities in the future. I've already told you that Elia Sand is one of my favourites. She continues to bug Ariane in a way. I think she's going to be of high importance going forward as well. Even Feathers makes a bit more of a, a name for himself in this in this chapter, which is quite funny. Over both chapters, we've had the questions of Daenerys. We've had the Quentin question, which I'm surprised we don't touch on a bit more at the end of this chapter. The fact that, yeah, he has failed, that he's not here we'll probably pick that up again in Ariane 3 to be honest but now settle in a bit more when it's really come through that oh here he is not here and I'm wondering how long it's going to take before she starts to think he's probably not coming back maybe of course I'll be confirmed for her later on but at some point she's also got to start thinking it for herself so obviously the ultimate question yes that's carried over both chapters in this one we've really got to meet the golden company itself and we talked about their impact on the wider Westerosi world post victory as well that's been really interesting and we had those caves and the children of the forest and you know I love that stuff so yeah I'm just really glad that we got to cover these I really do like Ariane as a chapter I love her personal development. I love her look on things. I like her skill. It's very, very exciting to think of all the many things she could do. She will decide, at least up to a point, the fate or the involvement of Dawn, at least. She's going to have a real impact on all that happens to Westeros. She's going to go up against Jonkon. She's going to meet Aegon. I still think there's a marriage there. She could very, very easily be Queen of Westeros in a few chapters time that wouldn't surprise me at all how long she'll stay as that or how successful that'll be who knows and maybe she won't but she is going to be there i think she's going to matter and i'm really looking forward to seeing just how far she can take that and again seeing those skills put to use now really on the biggest possible stage and all that that means <sighs> a lot to think about i could go on and on and on i guess i'll leave you right now but yeah i think like me you probably like Ariane one and two please let me know please do comment Please do get involved, not just with these episodes, with the questions episodes as well. Send your own in, send your answers in. We love to hear from you, of course. You can interact with us on Twitter, me and Emily as well. You can send a message. You can send an email, otherfacespodcast at gmail.com. You could leave a rating or a review if you're really, really cool. Or you can have... Or you can come and have a look at Patreon and talk to us there. That's always so very much appreciated as well. We love our patrons, of course, and we'd love for you to join them if you fancy. Next week coming is... Wow, it is a biggie. It is the Mercy chapter slash Aya. We return to Bravos, and many, many people will tell you that this is their favourite of the preview chapters. And it's hard to disagree. It's certainly a doozy. For me personally, I would guess that this is the one I know the least out of all of them, which is a pretty hard competition. I don't know any of them that well, but if I had to guess, I would say that I've probably read Mercy the least. So that's going to be really interesting to revisit that. We know how Aya's arc ended in dance and oh, we really did love that. So to get back to Mercy slash Aya now to see that next stage. Oh boy, howdy. Yeah, it's going to have, I mean, this one has a lot of tendrils that can definitely sneak out into later wins and a lot of theory crafting to come. So that will be next week. Before that, you will get the second edition of the 100 questions the winds of winter you'll probably get sparkle spectacular as well both of them will be appearing on patreon first don't forget so you can always come and have a look at that but they'll reach public soon enough and we look forward to having you and we'll look forward to seeing you here there and on every episode of the other faces thank you everyone for joining don't forget that nba playoff playing tournament starts again let's go spursies they're going to win the championship all i really want is for the warriors to beat the lakers one day you'll let me talk about that all day on the podcast but not this day Ariane wins this day Aya returns next time we're looking forward to it so we'll see you there see you next week we'll see you even earlier next week but either way thanks for turning up today and we'll see you next time thanks everyone